Yes. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another Rugby Muscle Podcast. I'm your host, as always, TJ, and today I am joined by Dr. Jake Reed once again. Um, he was our most downloaded podcast or most downloaded guest on the podcast that we've had. I hinted that maybe it's because it's nutrition or it was a nutrition podcast that we had him on, but I'd like to think that it's also because the guy is super smart. And in this episode, we get to find a little bit more about his background and how he became so super smart and super well-rounded and how he got his perspectives that he sees um, for his advice that he gives to rugby players and to you guys that he's going to give on this podcast. You get a bit more of a background and an understanding as to why this information becomes so important, why his uh, tips and ideas are super valuable for you guys as players and I think you should all pay attention to him. It's not just a case of him re-emphasizing all the points I say over and over again. He's got a few unique ideas and things that I actually hadn't heard of, um, including the mental toughness side of rugby and how you can sort of train for that and how um, that is brought about. And it, yeah, he doesn't just emphasize the same points. There are different things that I'd like to that I found out from this podcast, but there are also a lot of things that I thought, yeah, this is re-emphasizing exactly what my, my, ide- my ideas and my thoughts are. So it's good to know that someone um, so well-esteemed as Dr. Reed agrees with him. And that just especially makes me happier as the guy behind Rugby Muscle or Rugby-Muscle.com and all the programs that you'll find there, including the free conditioning guide on the homepage or if you go to Rugby-Muscle.com forward slash team, which is where you can find world-class strength and conditioning delivered directly to your phone phone via our new app, which makes it even easier for you to customize your training, to understand exactly what we're doing, and educate yourself. Because as we emphasize in this podcast, it's not just about sets and reps. There's no black and white formula. It's all a long-term learning and understanding process if you want to become a better rugby player. Anyway, let's get into this episode. Um, I'm not sure what number it is, but it's Rugby Muscle Podcast with Dr. Jake Read. Boom. All right, guys, we are joined once again by Dr. Jake Reed of Renaissance Periodization. Dr. Jake, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's always been a it's been a pleasure to have you on the last time and it's gonna be I'm sure it's gonna be a pleasure this time. So um yeah, well, let's just get straight into it rather than uh mess around. And um I wanted to get you on again because Last time when we talked shop, it actually ended up being the most listened to podcast. I didn't tell you this. This is the most listened to podcast we ha- we have had um, with a guest in history. So that's outstanding. Yeah, fantastic to hear. It might be because of um, just because we we spoke a lot about nutrition and there's not yeah. a lot of information about it, and that's a good thing I think because most of the nutrition information you, we have out these days is probably r- ridiculously shit. So yeah, yeah that's a fact. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I figured what we would do to start off this podcast would be to run through like what, what your day-to-day job is now, because it gives a bit more context into what we do. And then if you want to dive into a bit more of the history, because we gave you background last time, but I think it's always nice to see what, what you're doing now and get your experience from and how that sort of influenced what you do and, and, uh, the advice you sort of give. Absolutely. Um, so my, I, I technically have two jobs. Um, I'm a full-time prof- assistant professor at the University of Northern Iowa, where I teach uh, exercise physiology, sports science, strength and conditioning, those kinds of courses. Um, and then I also do my renaissance periodization consulting um, outside of that time period. And so my days are pretty pretty full with the two of those together and then two little boys and a wife as well. <laughs> um, but my, my history is kind of interesting that my as an athlete I was never really that great um, I just worked hard and just snap tried everything <laughs> yeah and so well, I, I played rugby in high school played it in college you know in America at that time it was all club unless you're looking at Berkeley or something along those lines mm-hmm. and um, I continued on after that and I coached at the University of Memphis a little bit uh, when I was getting my master's, and then I moved on. When I moved on to East Tennessee State, uh, there's a friend of mine, James Hoffman, who uh, we we started the rugby club there, and our whole intention was to create it with an absence of the social component of the game, not in a, like not a total absence, but 
a lot of rugby in America, especially at that time, was not about performing well and doing well. It was a social game, which there's nothing wrong with it, but we wanted something more. Like we were, we're performance-based people. We wanted to have that whole objective. And so we created the program with that in mind, got a really good group of guys, had structured training programs, uh, practices, games, the full gamut. And that's like what we did until we graduated and then handed the reins off. Uh, after I graduated from ETSU, I was given the opportunity to work for Texas a football as a sports scientist. And that's kind of where things started to get kind of interesting because at East Tennessee, I, I did some work with ROTC cadets um, in their training. I also was given the opportunity to work with volleyball. And then I got into being able to work with football at Texas A&M. So I've got rugby, volleyball, football, all of these opportunities where I've either kind of like performed the event or the game, mm-hmm. and then I also have been able to work with it. So got to A&M. Worked a lot with GPS technology because uh, they have the money to be able to afford anything. Uh, and so I managed that data and helped um, kind of consult almost as my main job to, you know, what this information is telling us and how we can create a better training process. Um, I had a boss who, um, Howard Gray, is the head sports scientist there um, when I was there. And so he and I would just communicate and see what we could do with the data. While I was at a and I, I learned real quick that uh, that kind of just work atmosphere wasn't for me. You know, 60 hours a week yeah. or more when you're at camp this time of year, you're looking at 80, and it's just, uh, it's, it wasn't something I saw myself doing, especially with the family in the long term, but I wanted to be a high-level sport. So I got there, I did it, and then I had an opportunity to work at UNI. Uh, the job posting came up, and I said, it's my alma mater from undergrad. This is Iowa's home. And so I really wanted to come back, and so did my wife. And so I went for it and got the job. And when I left a and was also the same time I started with Renaissance Periodization, as well as the time I started consulting with USA Rugby on a lot of data, um, a little bit of nutrition as well. Um, and so I was able to attend a couple camps, one at Salt Lake City, another in Chula Vista uh, for the time, and helped them through the 2017 World Cup. Um, and that was fantastic opportunity. Still working with, uh, still working at UNI and with Renaissance along the entire way, and that's kind of mm-hmm. where I am now. Is continuing to work with UNI and RP, uh, and just really trying to help out my clients and my students uh, as best I can. Dude, that's awesome. It, it, when you said it, it was an interesting backstory. I didn't, I didn't realize quite how interesting it was. I, that's <laughs> You know, but it's uh, it's cool because um, yeah, we, we I've interviewed a number of uh, strength coaches that are still in the NCAA realm, and it, it is it's such a grind, and it's um, it's funny how so many like a lot of um, strength coaches are just very underappreciated. I think very much so. Um, but we're here, we're trying to do good work, and so um, I want to I want to dive back into the social rugby thing in a second, but I just want to mm-hmm. then just run over first. Your online clients that you, you, you talk with now and you consult with now, um, what's their background? Do you have a, a mix of different different people? And Oh, yeah. I've had, you know, the, imagine it. I've probably had it. I, I've had, I generally take on a client a week uh, and since 2000, spring 2000 or summer 2016. So I've had around 130 to 140 clients, I think. Mm-hmm. Um I guess closer to 150, uh, but uh, it, it, it's been everything. It's been elderly women, uh, and elderly is a long term, but people that are in their <laughs> you know 60s or 70s. Yeah. Um, yeah, they won't consider themselves it, elderly. Yeah, I, I don't either. And it, it's funny side note on that. When I was at Memphis, we did pop uh, research on um, elderly populations. And mm-hmm. it was classified as 60 plus. And when all of them came in, like, why are you calling us elderly? We are not. <laughs> yeah. Noted. I am wrong. I am so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's you know it does it's it's everybody. I've had 19 year old clients. I've had females that weigh 115 pounds and they just want to gain weight. I've had 
um, men that are 270 that want to cut. I've had athletes, crossfitters, rugby. I mean, you name it. It's awesome. been it's been a little bit of everybody, and it's it's really neat to see that you know everybody does have their individual discrepancies just based on our genetics and the fact that we are people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, continuity. Yeah, and do you find that like it helps you with that with the like the complete spectrum of clients that you have like that helps you like be more well-rounded but it gives you more of an understanding for each individual as well like you know if you've seen it before with an elderly person and and you know you might have not ever seen that that maybe you have a younger client that has issues like that but whereas if you only work with one athlete or one type of athlete or one type of age category or one type of niche or niche um you know you end up being almost robotic in that sense so Oh my, that's an absolute fact. And it's the more you diverse you are in your experience and your background, like everything that led up to this, my background was huge and diverse. You know, I've competed weightlifting. Um, I did a huge mass phase. I'm training for a 50K now. It'll be my second. I've done sprint tries. You know, I've done as much stuff as I physically can to try it and see what it's like to experience it so that I have it. Yeah. And that's really what it comes down to. You know, when we want people, when people have their goal, a big component of achieving that goal, regardless of what it is, is being consistent. And if you understand what it takes for various, this large range of things, either you've experienced it yourself or you have clients that have gone through it, it allows you to say, hey, you know what, I know this is hard right now. You know, I've had I've tons of communications with clients, like, oh, things are struggling, you know, I'm at week nine and my cut, it's starting hard it's like hey it's okay this is super normal or you get the other side of it where it's week two and they haven't lost the four pounds of water weight that they lost on the first week and now they're thinking holy cow what's going on do i need to cut more calories it's all good it happens all the time keep writing it out we're going to get back to the average of one week and you're going to be gold yeah it's um what's is it there's a new there was a new book that come out that like supports this but within actually is in any context I can't I think it's called range uh, something mm-hmm. about you know and it's how generalists triumph in a specialized world and they talk about oh. how uh, you've got on one end of the spectrum like the specialist you've got Tiger Woods who you know just as he could walk um, was holding a golf club and was going on the course and then you've got Roger Federer who didn't specialize in in tennis until I think he was like. 17 or 18 or something and so they talk about how having that general background could really help you when you specialize because it presents you with problems that you might not ever see as a specialist absolutely and that's actually when i i talk about strength conditioning and i do my my training programs as well with clients um and even when i was a coach it was the most basic simple general things are going to create the absolute strongest foundation yeah. that you physically can create. And it actually, in all reality, it doesn't matter you know, who it is. If they don't have a history of basic, simple, good things, they're not going to, if you throw them into these specialized movements or you know, adaptations that you want to have, the magnitude of change isn't going to be as great. And the difficulty of actually seeing it was going to be greater. And so by having these super basic, good foundation of strength, power, and speed, size, endurance, the whole gamut, you can then start to get into the specialized areas. And that's what I've always said is I'm a very good generalist when it comes to that kind of stuff because mm-hmm. I see a lot of people just lack it. Even the most yep. high-level athletes you can even think of lack the basic general things because people think, oh, they're super good, now let's give them this slight little tweak, a little bit of a nuance, and that's going to make them that much better, when in all reality, they're missing so much of what they need to be able to express their talents and their physiology on the field of play. Absolutely. Um, and, and, like, it's, I'm so glad that you say that. Like, it's always good when I have the experts on and they back up the things that I've been saying for a while. And it's like... I've been called like a minimalist trainer quite recently a fair bit. And I'm like, I never yeah. really wanted to be like that. I want, you know, I wanted to be the, you know, the most advanced. I wanted everything to work. But at the end of the day, it's 
that minimalist stuff, like the basic stuff, that's the stuff that works the most. If it was, if it, you know, it's, you know, there is adherence and there's all of that sort of stuff. But if it, if it gets better, like everyone I give the basic stuff to always is more consistent, always gets way better results than the ones that want to specialize early. And then, you know, all of a sudden there's too much on their plate or it's too complex. And because they haven't nailed the basics, which is years and years of doing the basics, right? As opposed to just, yeah, trying to hone in the specialization early doors, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, are you? Is your is your microphone like like far away from your fa- face or something? I can't. Sometimes we're, we're cutting out a little. Is bit. it That's better all. now? Yes. Okay. That's. Good. I have I have uh, earpieces in, and sometimes uh, I don't know if they're actually connected or not. Oh, okay. Yeah. No. I mean, the yeah. sound quality is fine. It just it's just dipping in and out a little bit. That's all. But that's all good. Um, cool. So let's uh, revisit the, as as you said, you went, you did the, you started your an, a complete new rugby club um, with Dr. James Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, what sort of problems did you did you face? Because I know I know exactly what you're talking about. Where a lot of people, like a lot of guys in the US, they they take up rugby just to just for the social, right? And 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 they almost pride themselves in the social, and then they show up to a game. And they, they've only got 14 guys or, or, you know, it's just a mess. And I feel like that actually is a detriment to the game more than anything. So did you did you find that people took to what you were doing or did you find there was resistance? Uh, people took to it. Uh, when we approached the university uh, rec department about it, they it said you know, they had concerns because that's it, it's a big deal. It's a big problem. Because when, when I was playing in undergrad, I was the president of our club, and the amount of stuff I had to go through to try to save the club was absolutely absurd. And it all came back to people doing social things that just it, it didn't meet the either the image of the university or the image that we were trying to convey. And so when we came to the university and said, this is what we want to do, it's completely performance-based because as – our PhD program was attached to an Olympic training site um, for the sport of weightlifting. Hmm. And we knew the objective was to potentially expand into different sports. And so we saw it as a way to, hey, maybe we can help ETSU get into some rugby with this. Um, yeah. And so we approached the rec department. They were really happy to know that we were coming in and we wanted it to be a competitive area. Um, and they were all for it. And as far as... Um, athletes and those individuals, we were lucky enough that there was no history um, other than in the local men's club of the social components to it. And mm-hmm. so when we were talking to students, it was full on. They're like, oh, this is, this is real. They took it very serious. Our training was treated seriously. Practice was treated seriously. And they knew that, hey, this is an avenue to legitimately be competitive. Not to talk about being competitive and get upset when people don't do the right thing. But you have all the time. And that's what we're going to do. And people took to it. Hold on a sec there. I've just lost you again. You've gone super quiet. Let me do something. So so you're saying that it was a competitive, real outcome-based sort of environment? Yeah, and uh, a lot of our athletes took to it. And when we when we took the pitch for the first time, we played Duke, uh, and they were the same manner, the same way. They're full on performance. Uh, they beat us very handedly because uh, they had a lot of experience, and we had mm-hmm. none. All fresh guys, uh, but they saw the foundation there. And our foundation, just like in training, was super general, super specific, get that right, develop a solid defensive line, get your passing lanes correct, and then we'll start to expand from there and become a little more specialized in the kinds of things that we're doing. Awesome. And it worked, and they, they loved it. Now, we did have a little bit of pushback from the um, local men's club. Uh, they weren't too necessarily fond, I guess I would say, because they were hurting on numbers, and they thought, why not just combine the two? Get the students, and we'll all be one. And we said, your objective is not our objective. And so, thank you. We appreciate it. We did have a cordial relationship with them, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, they started. They learned. Okay, this is we are two different entities at that point. But that was it. You know, when I talked to the local 
Union, um, I think it was the Mid-South Union at the time, that's what they wanted to hear. They didn't want to have that social stigma. They wanted it to be a full-on professional approach. Um, and, but I absolutely agree on what you said earlier, that, that, that is a, it is a detriment to the game in the United States. At least historically it has been. It's gotten a lot better since I got into the game in 2005 or four, um, but it's you know it, it, it's still a it's still a detriment. Yeah, like there's nothing wrong with a good social element, you know, particularly after games and stuff like that. Oh, but for sure. When the social element is the main focus, like there's a lot of people, and I, you know, you you got to imagine that everyone listening to this is, you know, they want to compete, they want to challenge themselves, they want to be better. And at the heart of it, to me, anyway, is what competition is about. And, yeah, you get the camaraderie and all that stuff, and that's great. But at the end of the day, you compete to compete, to challenge yourself and to try and better yourself and and, and better the opposition. And if you're right. just fucking around and, I don't know, like, yeah, t- treating it, like, not seriously, you're going to come up against other oppositions that do treat it seriously when it's time, and, and then, then it's no fun. Like, losing isn't fun, no matter what. Nope. And then the fingers start to point, and it all comes back. It's just a, it's a vicious circle. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. And then with that in mind, we can, we can move on to some of the questions we've got, because the first question I have here is, um, is asking about your thoughts on rugby conditioning in 15s. Um, mm-hmm. So, because I think we get it a lot with a lot of head coaches and, and just rugby coaches without the sports science backgrounds. And I think just players in general, they'll do a lot of, They'll be influenced by you know the likes of CrossFit and the like in um, just that sort of influence of circuit training or hard intervals, and they'll do those for you know ten minutes at a time, maybe at the end of a workout or in the middle of a session. Uh, do you think that's a good idea for fifteens, or do you think there's a smarter approach or a different way that you would do it? I think there's an absolutely better approach, and it's through small-sided games. Mm-hmm. Um, don't get me wrong, those have a place. I mean, we've published a paper on small-sided games, repeated sprints, and high-intensity interval training and supported that you're going to get very similar physiological adaptations through any of those three means. And so if you're going to get that, why not do the one that's going to develop tactical knowledge, technical skills, and that kind of team cohesion that you're looking for, especially when they're fatigued. And so, for me personally, you know, following a basic periodized manner, yeah, there's times of the year you need to do high-intensity interval training, and there's also times of the year where you just need to go out and do a long run. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to go out and do a long run, and don't go super crazy with it, but have it be in a part of your off-season where you can handle that kind of fatigue the weather isn't absolutely atrocious. Like you can be outside for an hour or maybe you're outside for 80, whatever it is, yeah. and you can just enjoy it. And it's, there's not a lot of, you know, pressure on it. You're maybe you're in the you know neck of a, I don't know, hypertrophy phase and you want to get a little bit of that extra running in that can work. Absolutely can work. Um, but that's as far away from the season as possible. Closer you get to season, that volume drops off. The high-intensity interval stuff can start to pick up a little bit outside of regular training, but only if it's deemed that you actually need more than what's being provided. And I see a lot of coaches and every coach or sport that I've worked at, they always say, more is better, more is better, more is better. And to a degree, that is absolutely correct. But getting onto something that I know James has probably talked about multiple times is how much of your, well, we have the analogy of the beer pitcher, right? How much of your pitcher is full yeah. being recoverability? You know, that full pitcher is how much you can exert, how much you can pour out. Well, if you empty the thing and then you try to do more on top of that, well, there's nothing left. You're not getting that high quality. And so if you can, as a coach, design practices that are structured around things like small-sided games where the speed of the movements replicate games, there are specific tactical components to it, and there you're emphasizing a specific skill and or you're emphasizing a specific skill, you're going to develop the kind of fitness that you want them to have, which is the ability to execute under fatigued in game-like scenarios. And the best way to do that is to structure your practices just like it. And there's 
tons of literature out there on developing small-sided games. There's a book called Rugby Games and Drills. That's literally all it is. And so it's the best and most fun way for those athletes to actually develop their conditioning because I'm sure we've all been there that we get to the end of a practice and we know, oh, okay, I'm going to have to do my sprints at the end of practice. Everybody holds back just a little bit. As much as we like to say, no, I'm not going to hold back, bull, you are. Even if you're not doing it consciously, you are prepping yourself for the full, like the what you ha- know that you are going to have to do or what you expect you have to do. And so when you have practices that are organized, like, look, we're not going to have specific conditioning, but we're doing these drills. The whole purpose is this technique or the tactic. It just so happens that you're also going to get some physiological adaptation on along the way. People are going to be more happy to do it. You're going to have higher quality practices. And you might even be able to have shorter practices along the way. Yeah, that's actually it's so funny. That's actually exactly what I do when I had I'm a head coach of a men's club over here in Colorado as well, and so like it's so funny that like my day to day job is working with rugby players about conditioning. When I go to practice on a Tuesday or a Thursday evening, we, we yeah, there's a little bit of conditioning in there, but more of that is like speed work or general movement work. And then we do so much, just, it's just games because that's how you learn. And that's how like, and it, you don't have to be tired all the time. It's not about like, yeah, you learn your skill. You know, you want to, you want to make sure that your skills and your tactics are great under fatigue, but you also like, there's no point in learning that if you, if you can't get it fresh, you, you, what's the point of doing it under fatigue anyway? Like you need to find that balance as well. I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. Oh Yeah. Whenever I structured my practices, I always actually started with a small-sided game. Yep. Um, just a super fun one, like a monkey in the middle, four passes, and then you get a point, and then for three points, all right, you're out, next team in type of thing. Um, and then teach the tech technique through basic logical progressions. Okay, now we've gone through it, now let's execute it. Because if you want things to translate to actual performance, it has to be got, done at a pace at which they're expected to be able to play. Teach it slow, let it progress fast. Yeah. And I think, like, when when you look at teams like uh, the All Blacks when they play and any sort of high-level team, they always seem like they're, they're fitter in, like, the you know, because the, they, like, actually can't, can't even imagine the amount of games that the All Blacks in the past, you know, decade have pulled away over the last 30 minutes to go. It's It's got to be, you know, it's a ridiculous amount. And I think that's just... It's not down to they're necessarily any fitter. It's just that they're that much more uh, well-rounded with their skill set, so that when they are fatigued, their skill set's so good still that they can just keep up that play. Whereas other teams have worked their ass off just to keep up, and then their skills sort of break down as as um as the game goes on. Yep, absolutely. For sure. Um, that's cool. And do do you think that there's a a good place though for extra conditioning? So most. You know, most guys listening to this will be training two times a week, maybe three. Uh, this is their rugby training. Do you think there's a lot of we talk? We spoke about that picture before. Um, do you think there's a lot of still room in that picture for extra conditioning, or do you think what like a lot of guys think is that that time should all be spent on weights and stuff like that? Uh, I think uh, it's going to depend on the phase of the season. Well, you know, right now you, you should probably be focusing on making ensuring that your conditioning is is there. Yeah. If you want to be able to play in, you know, competitively. Now there, there's a researcher uh, by the name of Tim Gabbett, and he's uh, big on the athlete monitoring realm. And what the thing that he always espouses is we want people to work hard, but we don't want people to go from doing nothing. You know, it's at zero to a hundred real quick. We don't want that. I want it to be as slow as freaking possible to get to that. And so, in these preseason times a year, work up, develop a really high foundation of fitness. And then, as the season gets in, gets rolling, you can back off a little bit, allowing yourself to express that fitness, allowing yourself time to recover because you've done the work ahead of time. Like preseasons should be hard when, you know, regardless of the sport that you're talking about. Um, but you, you can back off. Now for the people that are doing those like 
two practices a week and they got a game, yeah, you might want to consider an extra day potentially of fitness training. I wouldn't necessarily do another three days of, of weights because yeah. uh, you have to imagine, do I actually have the time to not only recover but also adapt from practice, from the game itself, which is going to break you down and then also the weights on top of it so are you just continually breaking yourself down you know the banisters model where you just keep going down 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 yeah. or are you giving yourself the opportunity to actually recover and recovery is getting back to normal and then adapting honestly all your adaptation and all of that should be happening before the season even starts you want to be able to recover be good and just roll at that level so wherever you are at the beginning of the season It'd be great if you were better, but let's be real. Let's be the same person I was at the end. Healthy, strong, and rolling hard and fast. Yeah. Uh, and I think, yeah, it goes almost without saying, is a lot of my guys, that when they play, they're going to get their most, in season, they're going to get their most amount of conditioning done during the games mm -hmm. on those Saturdays. And so um, sometimes when we have weeks off, that's, that is the time. If we have a, a bye week or if I have um, extras, uh, guys that haven't made the squad, I will make them do a lot of hard fitness then because they've missed out. And, and unfortunately, you know, it's a lot harder to do that hard conditioning without chasing the ball around uh, for 80 minutes. It's mm -hmm. for some reason, you know, as soon as you add in that competitive environment and you had a ball, put, put ball in there, people can push themselves way harder than they would do with just a with a clock or and and a field. But oh, yeah. it is what it is. But I, th I still think that that's what a lot of people don't understand is your you're almost getting so much fitter, you know, match fitness because you're playing those games and there's nothing like a game of rugby to really develop you for the game of rugby or just exactly. fitness in general because the amount of components you use is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that um, off week, you know, you, playing it by ear. You know, are we beat up and broken? Okay, maybe we need to recover a little bit. Or like in your scenario, you got guys that Maybe they haven't played a whole lot. Uh, maybe the whole team is pretty healthy, and you got the opportunity to develop to in, like maintain that level of fitness throughout the season. Because it does take doing fit things. It's not like you can sit around, right, yeah. and stay at least where you were. You have to be able to do it. Um, but the all other nice thing about those weeks that you're you know you're talking about, where it's really hard to get people to go, that psychological component. Um, there's a lot of power there. There's actually a book I've read called Endure uh, by Alex Hutchison. It's uh, talking about ultra endurance and that kind of stuff, but how our mind is uh, it, more powerful than we absolutely know. And being bored and learning how to cope with boredom oh. and the things that we don't necessarily like can translate into probably being able to express more physiological components than we, prob than we knew we could have. It's. I mean, it is going down to you got to be able to work hard and go through the grind. But it's a. There's a little more nuance to it than that, and you can plan out those times. Like, look, it's gonna suck. It's okay. Let's get this done. Yeah, that is a, that is a tangent that I would love to go down because that's something I've been exploring a lot recently. Um, about you know the art of it, with if you've if you've heard of David Goggins and his his sort of work and. The, you know embracing the grind and just doing things that you don't want to do like mm -hmm. there's a lot to be said for actual just general like real world physical preparation you know the person that's in the best shape is usually going to be best prepared to you know deal with that task and and win but at the same time mental toughness i do like i've gone away from not believing it's an actual thing but i don't think it's it's on a it's you need to still be fit for it to appreciate how, how much mental toughness can do for you, I think. Oh, that's an absolute fact. Uh, there's a faculty member of ours, named uh, Dr. Mick Mack. Um, he's a mental toughness researcher, a sports psych guy. And um, one thing that he's found, and it, uh, it seems to be just with all, all sports, is that you know people, like, we're almost inherently born with mental toughness. Like, however much we have is how much we have. But we can learn to express, like, to open that bottle to find all of it. And one of the ways that he's found that it happens is actually getting people in these competitive environments, like actually getting them in competition. Yeah. And so competing and playing, that's where it seems that 
mental toughness actually starts to develop and people gain confidence as oh I'm on the field to play I have to be able to do this they have their good moments coaches really capitalize on the good and then give small slight tweaks for the for the bad and then that develops it but it's not necessarily just through that hard just bore your head into a wall type training that's where the nuance becomes really really interesting but it is exactly like you said you know you're not going to get onto the field of play if you don't have the fitness to be able to do it yeah, yeah uh, it's, it's, so it's going to suck no matter what however much fitness you have doing whatever the conditioning is but you know getting people that competitive opportunity uh, it does seem to be a key component to enhancing mental toughness even though you might risk a loss or a subpar performance. In the long run, it might be better to have that risk because then you have a more well-developed team of people that are competent and have that kind of toughness that you want. Um, so do you, do you think that that mental toughness is, come? you said it comes a lot more from competition as opposed to, because you know you always see the teams, and actually I saw England, uh, England did it in their preparation for the World Cup, they went through, you know, the traditional SAS or Marine sort of style training and yeah. they did that. And that's like, that's like always, that's so cliche to build mental toughness. And I'm, I've always been sort of skeptical of the, you know, the relevance and the significance of that yeah. compared to just playing lots of really hard games against each other. I think just that makes the biggest difference. Would you agree or do you have any other thoughts on that? To an extent, I think they're two different things. Is um, at A and M, I was very fortunate to be able to see that kind of training put into place and mm -hmm. executed the right way, which what I would say is the right way because that was the same. I thought it was pointless. Why are you burying these people in the ground? Yeah. Uh, but what ended up happening was that this group came in, they took the the players, and they put them through really basic physical tasks. It's not. It wasn't designed to bury them and only bury them. It was designed to make them tired and make them tired over a long term and yeah. then they stop and say, okay, look, what are you going to do? All right, be a leader. You're tired. Everybody else is tired. How are you going to motivate? How are you going to do these things? Because it was more about using the fatigue, like they wanted them to get there. And then that led them to be able to teach how to be a leader, how to be a teammate while fatigued in these scenarios. So is that really mental toughness? Maybe, because you're probably going to get something that shows that a person is coming out and now they're expressing what you want them to look like when they're tired. They're talking to their teammates. They're building them up. They're exhibiting those traits that we would all imagine. And yes, there was hard training that led to it, but it was the educational piece teaching them how to be that way that really led to the positive adaptations of what you look for. And so whenever I see these like hardcore military SEAL type training programs, I always imagine, okay, are they just doing it to bury people or are they doing it to get them to the point where they're fatigued, they're right at the edge, they don't, they're really, really, really uncomfortable and then they're teaching them. That's where it can be really beneficial, and that's where you get into these kind of – it is two different realms. So you teach them that while they're fatigued, the skills that you want them to exhibit on the field of play. And then they get to the field of play, and they've already experienced it. But at least they have the, tact, the, the, the knowledge, the mindset to be able to know this is what I have to do in order to – fix whatever may be going on or to bring up team morale or whatever it is that we would expect out of a mentally tough individual awesome yeah i could see that um and, and it also makes me think about what you were talking about the, with the competitive side of things that the, the different side of mental toughness training like all the teams right now are pre preparing for the world cup are going through these uh and i have to put it in uh air quotations is warm-up matches because if you saw the if anyone saw the most recent england v wales game like you wouldn't have called that a warm-up match like that was full intensity like both teams going as hard as they can at it type of game <laughs> and like that's it's you know and they both immediately after the game both teams kind of dismissed it straight away and just said look this doesn't really matter like it's all about the world cup blah 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 and that just goes to show that's that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to build up that toughness, game specific, not just working about, not just working the moves, or not just you know, practicing the hands or, or whatever sort of 
tactics they've been going over, but also working that grind. And, mm -hmm. you know, whether you fail or you win, you still learn from those get, getting into such a competitive World Cup, well, as we hope it's going to be. Absolutely. And on top of that, I don't know what their squads looked like, if it was the expected World Cup squad, but I guarantee that was an opportunity for them to see what different squads looked like. Yeah. For those few opportunities that, hey, maybe we maybe we don't know who our top 22 are. Maybe we don't know who we're bringing. Or maybe we got to determine between these two or three people who we actually want. And we need to get them in these real matches to figure out, all right, who who is it? Who's Everybody under, else under is there kind of as a part of the show where it might probably is focused on two to three different individuals. All right, are you coming or not? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Cool. Um, I want to switch gears now real quick to mm -hmm. um, just overall athleticism because, or phrase another way, like transferring like gym muscle and gym gains onto the pitch, like mm -hmm. functional strength. Um, what are your general thoughts on how it is approached in like the mainstream versus what do you think really should be should be done and how it, how it works. I think people like to fall into camps. You know, we are tribal creatures and that we're either in the, you need to be super strong and squat two times your body weight and everything else is fixed from there. Or you need to be doing this super crazy hardcore, like not really, but standing on a basu ball type stuff or moving um, sandbags or whatever it is. If you're not doing only that, you're not it. And if you're not squatting for two times body weight squat or whatever it may be, or, you know, you're selling yourself short. Um, I stand, as with a lot of things, in the middle. Yeah. And the way that I see it is that when we're conditioning, we're, we're trying to develop a foundation, right, of some sort of physical attributes. Um, you know, use a needs analysis to determine what 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 is needed, uh, and that's done farther out of the season. You know, you're not anywhere near the season. You're developing this foundation because, typically speaking, doing that re requires a lot more recovery, and you're doing a lot more damage to the body. Um, and so, you're filling your you're emptying your pitcher with condition or with training, with like physical training in the weight room, right? Yeah. And some conditioning outside as well. Pretty general stuff, though. As we get closer, you need to be able to express those physical, physical attributes. Now, it's not like you can go straight from the weight room to the pitch. Like that, That's not going to happen. You do have to learn how to use those types of things. And so the closer and closer you get, yeah, you still keep in that foundational type movement stuff, you know, squat, deadlift, whatever, bench, rows, pull-ups, whatever you deem as your foundational stuff. But then you can start tossing in the other things. Uh, I should throw clean, snatch, all that kind of stuff into the foundational stuff as well. Yeah. Because then you start to learn, like, okay, let's take the clean, for example. Um, you know, clean, vertical movement. You go into a ruck and you hit it hard. Well, that's a lot of horizontal stuff, but it's very similar when you just flip it, right? Yeah. And so... But then you've got a body that's not perfectly balanced that you got to try to move. And you're not, only per you're not perfectly balanced either. So then doing something maybe with a sandbag, a sandbag clean, a sandbag whatever it is, toss, you know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But that kind of realm of functional type stuff um, allows you to express the foundational components that you've actually like developed. And then that may, hopefully anyway, will help transfer when you get into practice and now you're, you're feeling it in practice as well. You're practicing rucking. You're pushing against another, uh, another body that's not perfectly balanced. And that's really, in my opinion anyway, where reality is. Develop a really, really, really good foundation. Learn to express it in a con more controlled manner, and then continue that learning in a real-world type scenario. And when you do that, it really does, it, it will help. You know, if you look at the movement Miyagi, Sean Mizek, uh, I yep. don't want to butcher his name, um, out of Minneapolis, he's talked about similar stuff like that. You do everything that's awesome that you should be doing in the weight room, you get faster on your test, and it translates nothing into the actual sport. Whereas if you teach people how to do the skills that they have to do and express their physiological attributes, in that educational setting, it, it's functional, 
and it will get the net result that you're looking for. So it's it's both. You know, short answer is it's both. You plan it accordingly based on how much you know recovery I actually have, I need to be able to have to adapt, um, and what's going on from a season standpoint. But that's how I would do it anyway, and that's where I see that the reality is that if you want all of it, you can't just do one. You have to do everything uh, and do it in a logical manner. Awesome, Jake. Yeah, it's. Do you, do you think it's like a? I always talk about because we love pyramids in strength and conditioning, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the science, and so I always talk about it like it's a pyramid where you know your foundation is like your general strength, your general aerobic fitness, that sort of stuff, and to an extent, like your movement, like your general movement, like how 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 do you look when you just sprint? How do you look like when you're trying to step? But just in a general fashion, and that's mm-hmm. all of your base, and that's like the base of the pyramid, and and that's great. Is having a you know the bigger base that you have, the more potential you have to to build a real tall pyramid. But at the same time, you still have to work on the the other stuff, the specialization stuff, the reactive stuff, the the special specific movement stuff with agi- especially when it comes to agility and, and and like grappling for ruck technique and tackling technique. Yep. Like you have to work that stuff. But if you're only working that stuff, then you haven't got the, the foundation to, to get a real tall pyramid. And the idea to be the best rugby player you can be is to build the tallest pyramid you can be. Not necessarily the widest, but the, the tallest. But you, so you need elements of everything in it. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. That's 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 spot on. Like you have to do it all. And it and the other piece of that is, you know, it does come down to the individual's needs. Some yes. people might be you might you know, being in Iowa. We get a lot of wrestlers. Wrestlers are generally speaking amazing tacklers and amazing ruckers, but their hands are questionable. Yeah, and so you, I don't know, not necessarily tweak, but you polish their already good wrestling skills, and then you can work on maybe hand movement, getting yourself into the right positions, learning how to move, like run in space that kind of stuff. Learning how to sprint. Some people don't know how. Their technique is atrocious. Um, But it's all pieces of the pyramid. It's almost like you have, you know, the the foundation of it has these individual parts. Some of it might be pretty high for others, but you need to bring up the rest of it. And it's going to be different for each person as you try to build that tall pyramid. Yeah, most people are going to be somewhere in between. But, I mean, I've got two perfect examples of two athletes that I've coached and what well, actually I still coach both of them but you've got one where he it, well, you know he was a wrestler and yeah you know, he would he had this absolute grinding mentality r- ridiculously strong so we didn't need to do any more you know he's strong enough that's not something that we need to be working on but because he was a wrestler and he competed in like shorts about shorter bouts he didn't really have a good aerobic base and so we the more we worked on that aerobic base the more composed he could be throughout practices in specifically to i think you said this on the last one like the more prepared you are and the more in shape you are for each practice every single little skill that you work on gets that much better and he became like a a significantly better player because of it because he just got that little bit fitter he was already strong enough we didn't lose any strength and that allowed him to work on all the skills and then at the same time we have a we had a guy who was just uh he was a ridiculously good he's a ridiculously good center and he has, you know, really good feet, a, a beautiful pass and all this stuff, but he doesn't have any sort of foundation of strength. He, he could barely squat, you know, uh, 135. And so we're, we're now adding in that strength component and he's seeing that pay dividends because that's making everything else easier. And, you, and it's, like you said, that needs analysis. Everyone is going to be completely different and they've got to figure out exactly where they're weak and then work on those for the best bang for their buck and get yep. a complete bigger picture. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, and then I guess I got one more question specifically. I was told to ask you about um, how, how do we how do we make athletes or how do athletes become more explosive? Is it just a case of adding more muscle, or is there a lot more of a different component to that? We've mentioned cleans, but right is, is it's, that it? <laughs> it's a it's oh it's so hard with okay you look at the literature. If you're stronger, you're going. You have a much higher likelihood of being more explosive. Like, you know, explosiveness is power, right? Power is force times velocity. 
Force is strength. It, it is that simple. From But that's as simple as it gets. Because now we have, just like we've been talking about, all these different people. Everybody has different muscle fiber types. Our muscle fiber types are constantly changing, probably on a minute-to-minute -minute level, at a minuscule piece. But they're always constantly changing. And they're yeah. changing based on the stimulus that we provide it. And so like that's, take that scenario um, with the center who's not very strong. Getting them stronger will enhance that force component. And in, as long as you do some higher velocity type stuff, guess what? They're going to get more powerful. They're going to be more explosive. Um, whereas if you take somebody that is maybe um, super strong, but they just have no explosion, well, they can already express, express high strength. So now you have to teach their body how to be explosive. Now, you're never going to have people go from, like, being super strong to, holy crap, it's the fastest person in the world. Like, look at Paulo Antonono, who is, you know, Olympian speed skater. Once he, once he retired, he went into marathon running, and he did good. He qualified for Boston, but he was nowhere near a world, world class. Yeah. Uh, but we we can do that for each person. And the, the way that it's actually a part of the research that um, I, I've been working on over the past couple of years is a, a way to kind of assess that potentially um, in that we use the reactive strength index. I use it as a means of looking at fatigue, yeah. uh, whereas you have them stand on a box um, do a, and do a drop jump, right? Stand on the box, step off, hit the ground, pop back up, try to get as high as you can with as little time on the ground as possible and land. Well, if you get the amount of time that they're on the ground and the amount of time that they're in the air, you get this ratio. But you can get the same ratio by manipulating time on the ground and time in the air. And so if you have somebody that is very little time on the, uh, on the ground, but they don't get very high, that might imply that they need more strength. And so, okay, now let's focus on that. Whereas if you have somebody that just when they land, they're fully loading up and taking forever to get back up in the air, and they get a pretty decent RSI, well, awesome. You're probably pretty strong. You can look at weight room numbers to show that. Now let's look, work on expressing that speed. And so that's where... You know, uh, power cleans are fan-freaking-tastic for that kind of thing. Uh, Mid-thigh pulls, putting a rat bar on the rack and then putting it at mid-thigh so you have a 135-ish degree knee angle mm -hmm. and then just trying to jump with it but not actually leaving the ground with it's actually a pretty heavy weight, like 150% of a clean or somewhere along those lines it can be. Um, is another great one uh, to be able to do, but also you have you know any sort of um, kettlebell, dumbbell, any of those type movements can work. But at the end of the day, we have to think of you know the force velocity curve. How are we manipulating that? Like you have high force movements, but they're really really low velocity, like in deadlift. Well, you also can have really high velocity movements that are really low force, like. Um, kettlebell snatch or something along those lines and so we're we're doing very 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 different things when we're doing that you know at the other end of the low end um, high velocity low load spectrum can be ballistic things like um speed uh, not speed squats but jump squats even and that kind of stuff uh but we're training very different pieces and so it does get back to what we were just talking about where you know develop that foundational component based on what they need and part of that being explosive is learning how to move heavy weights pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And then you translate transition into, okay, now we've got lighter weights, we're moving them much faster, and maybe we're getting a little bit ballistic where we're leaving the ground, we're not actually like stopping at the top. Um, and that will help to develop explosiveness, absolutely will help to develop explosiveness. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's all a big spectrum and it's it's there's no precise way and no. I, I think what you've mentioned there it's also it sometimes rub pe rubs people the wrong way or they don't they can't wrap their head around it because you just said as you get better you end up making the load potentially like a good deal lighter which mm -hmm. a lot of people aren't used to because they're like well hold on here if i'm getting better surely i should lift more weight and it's like no you're, you've got to move faster and if you can keep your quality joint angles um and you can keep your move your movement like real sp good and efficient at a faster pace, then you're going to be a better player again. Yep. And that's how you get, that's how you sort of build explosion. Awesome. 
All right, uh, we're coming up on time here, Doctor Jake. Um, is there anything else that you any any other uh, interesting points of note that you you doing in your research uh, recently? Hmm. Nothing really off the top of my head. The mental toughness stuff I talked about, we actually yeah. did a study with that in volleyball. We've we've um, published a little bit last year. Um, we saw no relationship with any of that to how people performed in any fitness task. We actually it was it was in a volleyball team. Uh, we had them do the uh, the beep test um, mm -hmm. and did Gross. the mental toughness questionnaire as well. Uh, at that same time, no encouragement was allowed during the test, none of it, and we saw absolutely no relationship with how people did in the test to how people performed on the mental toughness test, like questionnaire. And so, yeah, you can question the questionnaire <laughs> all you yeah. want, uh, people can, but at the end of the day, if you want to measure it, we have to have something to measure it with. And all that really tells us is that you do not know if a person is mentally tough based on how hard it looks like they're training and running and doing all that kind of stuff. Don't get me wrong. It's a piece of it. But you cannot do it just based on that visual, oh, look, they're first in, and they're doing more than everybody else. When in all reality, they might not think much of themselves and they might not have high self-efficacy or high belief well, which is self-efficacy, but they might not even have the skill set to be able to express all of these amazing physical attributes. So that's kind of the pro probably the piece I would end with is that you know when we see people, don't be harsh to judge them on if they're really mentally tough or not. There, there's a lot more there than just how they're doing on a hard conditioning session. They can tell us a lot. Don't get me wrong, but they don't tell the whole story. And so we really have to be cognizant as coaches as to if we really want to develop mental toughness and these physiological attributes that we're looking to do, are we actually doing it? Are we giving them the skills that we want them to have? And a, a lot of it really comes down to is, is teaching, is educating, giving them the, ability, the things they need, the, the tools to do what we want them to do as a mentally tough athlete on the field of play. Yeah, yeah so it's not necessarily... If you see a guy that's really trying to grind in the gym, and or, that doesn't necessarily mean anything to suggest that he's going to be mentally tough or anything like that. Like, right? You, we're training. We, you know, our training is for the outcomes, not for anything else. Right. It, it's not for the gym. <laughs> yeah. It's it's for the field of play, um, and there are two very different things. Um, awesome. Unless you know you're a, you're an Olympic weightlifter, then that it is the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's you know, we have to be mindful of it. That's so. That's perfect. That's a great note to end on. Um, if anyone wants to know some more information um, about this research or any any um, more in, ins and outs on your on your life, do you are you, are you big on the social media these days? No, I have it. Um, yeah. and you're more than welcome to reach out to me. Uh, Instagram, I'm R R P Doctor Reed. Um, I'll, pro I'll I'll answer stuff on there. My Facebook is you know I don't really hardly use it at all um, but person my personal email my, my work one um, which is jacob.read at uni.edu I've actually gotten a few um, any podcast I do I always give my that email address and I'm, I've gotten a few questions awesome. and I'm really happy to answer them um, in a more personal uh, environment rather than the what unfortunately you know social media can be kind of caustic and in all reality I just want to be able to talk Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. So yeah, guys, take him up on that opportunity. If you have any questions, hit him up. I'll put the email in the uh, show notes anyway, so they can hit you up, and um, that'll be great. Yeah, use that opportunity, get some real good information, quality information, and understand exactly what you need. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this or any other episode of the Robbie Muscle Podcast, please feel free to share it with your friends or teammates. It's something that little things like that that you can do that really do help the show grow. And the more we grow, the more we can help you guys out. Another thing that you can do is go ahead and give us a five-star review on iTunes. That only takes about 20 seconds. And again, it helps us grow and helps us spread the podcast to people that need it. 
If you're interested in stepping up your training, then visit rugby-muscle.com where you can pick up 50 free rugby conditioning sessions or you can join Team Rugby Muscle where you get world-class strength and conditioning delivered directly to your phone. That's rugby-muscle.com for more information on all of that. Thank you guys for so much for listening and we'll see you in the next one.